This is Driven by Data, the podcast. Welcome back to another episode of Driven by Data, the podcast, season two, powered by Orbition Group and hosted by me, Kyle Winterbottom. We're delighted to bring you another season of Driven by Data, the podcast, which boasts even more data analytics and AI thought leaders from across the globe. Our aim remains the same to uncover how some of the most prominent leaders within the data analytics community tackle our industry's most trending topics, told in order to share knowledge, ideas, and experience. And just as in season one, to give back to the global data and analytics community. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode. Welcome to Driven by Data, the podcast, season two. Today, I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by David Block, who is the business owner of SME2. So David, thank you very much for joining us. Cheers, Carl. It's a pleasure. Pleasure is all ours, David. So look, where we always start, as as you know, is by asking, I guess, our, uh, our, our guests to give themselves a brief introduction into their background and, and journey up until this point. And yours has been very eventful, right? So I'm looking forward to looking forward to hearing all about it. Yeah, I've had a really interesting way to get into data. So I've, I've kind of been sitting in data for the last 22 years um, and stumbled into it, I guess, as anyone back then did. So prior to the days of proper data warehousing or <laughs> the idea of even visualization didn't really exist. Um, but I was playing sport and got injured and um, from there needed a plan B and stumbled into a job in the health sector. And, and there's just a lot of interesting data in the health sector. So my starting point was connecting machines and then doing a little bit of diagnostics an ophthalmology and a few other areas. And then from there, I just started to get more and more um, involved in data. So I kind of went through a few jobs in the health sector, built a data warehouse in a primary health organization, which was a lot of fun um, and got a lot of sort of war wounds from that. But as we were starting to look to incorporate more business models and, and drive more value for our patients, we started looking at um, what would now know be as data science. Uh, so I got involved in statistics at a very young age um, from that as well. And then for the last 15 years, I've primarily been leading uh, initiatives that have been around data science and growing uh, data as a skill set inside organizations. Nice, nice. Yeah, and there's been some, been some sizable organizations on on that uh, on that CV, which is a uh, which is always yeah. great great to see and, and give some interesting experience, I'm sure. So, um, to tell us a little bit about the the business then SME two at the minute in terms of you know who you guys are, what you're up to, types of projects, clients, etc. You know, no no names of course, but I guess just yeah, high right. level kind of what you what you're into. Yeah, so it's been a long-standing advisory consultancy and investment brand that I've run. Um, and in today's gig economy, it just gives me a way of kind of picking up very interesting work. But I've used it to offer chief data and chief analytics offices as a service offerings, um, both to corporate companies, but also growth companies. Nice. But also invest and advise emergent technology brands. So I've founded a couple of companies um, in the healthcare sector, as well as some data companies. But it's just been an interesting way to kind of have something tidying over. And I think as we get to more of the gig economy, we talk about some of those bigger brands. I guess one of the things that I've always been able to do is bring best of breed of what works in big brands and bring them into to startups, but also bring a bit of that hustle and drive out of startups into the bigger brands and try and change the way that we think about data or technology or marketing or whatever area I've, I've been involved in. Yeah. Mm, yeah. God, that's got to be a record. We're, uh, we're we're a few minutes in, and we're, we're talking about change already. Which uh, <laughs> <laughs> data is change, and I'm sure we'll get into that a bit more. Yeah, it is. It is. You're right. Um, so I guess one of the things that we spoke about offline, I guess, is this kind of concept that chief data officers kind of should look at themselves on an equal playing field as a, you know think like an executive i guess right would be the, the the slogan if we were to give it one but for some reason often don't whether that's consciously or subconsciously right and that was a concept that, that i've heard you speak about before and seen you know, you know you've written articles about and things like that so just just talk us, us talk us through that yeah i think because of the newness of the role right a lot of people are sort of coming in and almost waiting to be told what to do now, if I was to parallel that to a chief marketing officer or a chief financial officer coming into an organization, 
they're of course going to be consulting their CEO and the wider executive team, but they're not going to be sitting around saying, well, I need to be told what to do. In a lot of cases, I think data professionals, maybe there's an imposter syndrome at play. Maybe what they're doing is kind of um, looking to drive consensus on a decision on agreement. I think part of the other challenge you've got, and I'm sure we'll get into this, is what are the skills that are actually required to lead a data team? So do you need to be hardcore knowledge in the technical elements? Should you have run some strategic elements and driven some programs? And I think in a lot of cases, chief data officers are tending to come from a pretty similar background, right? They've had some risk and governance role in, in data. They're probably more on the general management side and then they're getting to that top table position. Now, that's not a precursor of them not being successful, but I think one of the challenges is if you've not really come in with the hardcore skill sets around how do I make data work, how do I seek value, how do I drive support and mandate, and also some of those other skills that uh, being an executive is about. You think about negotiation, you think about being able to really drive culture and a mandate, you, th you think about almost being able to lead your own department in your own area with consultation rather than waiting for people to sort of say this is what is needed to be done. Those are the things that I think I'm seeing a lot of chief data officers struggle with. Um, we're also in an area where everyone kind of thinks they know about data, but not necessarily. So that's one of the other challenges. How do you sort of educate in an area where everyone's got a, an idea of what they think it means, but not necessarily um, an, an idea of how to execute or how to support you in your own execution? Yeah, I mean, it's a very good point, right? Because if you, obviously, we're, you know, our industry is littered with buzzwords, right? But if you went and asked, um, you know, 10 different business leaders from 10 different sectors you know what is data what does data mean to you you'll probably get very different answers so you know yeah. god only god only knows why we think it's going to be any different when we start talking about more advanced techniques right around kind of like data science or ai so it's you know it's 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 very contextual which which makes sense the imposter syndrome thing interests me and i want to bring you back to that for a second what why do you think that's the case then because you you reference like a, a cmo as an example there right yeah. and i absolutely agree with you that that would be the way typically it would play out right and i absolutely agree with you that typically in cdo type roles unless you know it's someone with a wealth of experience that's kind of been there done it and probably been largely successful they would probably yeah almost want to try and get to the crux of well what do you want me to do more so than them being the figurehead for this is what we should do right yeah. so why, why do you think we're in that position I still think we're in a case where it's a very new role um, and what it means to each company is quite different, right? And um, you would have seen and, and we've all seen, you take 100 chief financial officers job descriptions and you have a look at what's in there and what's required, it's going to be pretty consistent. You take 100 chief data officers and have a look at their job roles, we're going to have a lot of spread. So it's a little bit of an, a misunderstanding and a misalignment at times around what a chief data officer should be to an organisation. So the newness is there. I think also the, um, if we think about marketing, we think about finance, we think about um, law, we've got pretty clear ideas because they're very long standing around how we drive value in an organization. And I'm sure the word value is gonna come up a lot because for me, that's the only reason you should do data and technology to be fair. Now, even in um, a chief information officer's case, a lot of the cases are very cost-driven and efficiency-driven, but they've gotten used to value too, driving value in terms of what they're doing with new systems, but also taking value away, and well, not taking value away, but taking cost away to drive value and support and efficiency. Data is almost allergic to value, and I think this is why that imposter syndrome comes in. Now, if, how many people, if you would put them on the spot and said, quantify the benefits of what your team does? So if it could be a, a data warehouse developer, it could be a, a data scientist, it could be a visualization expert, quantify the value that you've delivered in the last little while. And you'll hear radio silence from a lot of people. Now, part of the challenge there is data in itself doesn't really drive value because it's there. It's a change factor. We change a price or we go into a different decision or we create efficiency in a process. We've got all sorts of ways of creating value, but they're intangible in many circumstances. So now you need to start thinking about metrics that would relate to that. So because we don't have this clarity around what is it that we're actually driving, um, here's the numbers that we've done, and this is what we want to do in our future. And the other challenge is the never-ending cycle of data strategy that most organizations are going through. For the last 15 to 20 years, every three to five years, these big, big organizations have a brand new data strategy and they haven't really delivered on the last one. So we went through that phase of talking about big data, right? And it's still very critical to some organizations, but 
arguably small data never really got solved in a lot of those places, right? We never had good management, good domain centrality or anything else. So you have this tedium, and I think Gartner used to call the trough of disillusion, and I think that's a good term. We've invested so much in data, we haven't really got anywhere with it, and you want us to invest more. And, and that, when you're coming in as a chief data officer, right, you're probably already coming in with preconceptions around what's going to work and what's not going to work. Um, and you've also probably not done what I would say a chief executive or a chief marketing officer has done when they've set the role up for themselves. They've come in and they've driven as much about interviewing the company as to why they should work there as much as the company interviewing them. So I think some of these sort of core skills around being an executive, right, being able to negotiate, being able to draft a strategy and, and be compelling, the storytelling element, and then the attachment to value, all of these things don't tend to always be there for chief data officers in my experience. Now, there are some that are very good at it. Um, now, that when you think about being at that top table and you're talking about business drive and direction and the commercial side of things, most executives are able to contribute to other people's areas, and I think data professionals need to be the same. Um, have a good understanding of how your business creates cash and, and be able to contribute in those areas and back yourself a little bit more would be my advice around getting away from that imposter syndrome. Mm, yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, you said so, so many great things there. Um, you know, I'd love to, to unpack some of them. And obviously, you started speaking there about the type of skills that, you know, a, a chief data officer needs to have to be effective to yeah. effectively, you know, kind of break through the barrier of that imposter syndrome and start to think and feel part of that kind of, you know, board or, or C-suite. Um, I always find it interesting, though, around the concept of, of value because, you, and you very rightly said, it's intangible, right? So the, the data, just having it, building a data warehouse and having your data flung in there doesn't do anything for you. You know, it's uh, there's got to be some kind of action that leads to, something changing which ultimately then might move a dial up or down whatever the case may be right whether it's trying to increase revenue sales profit reduce cost mitigate risk whatever right um yeah i always find it fascinating when there seems to be a real kind of separation of opinion on this in terms of is it feasible is it possible should it even matter um, you know, I've had someone before kind of explain this to me as um, they said, you know, I see myself and our team almost as like the imagine being the, 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 the masseuse or the sports therapist for a sports team. Like, can, can they quantify the value that they have on performance? No. But is it likely that what, you know, because they've done some good work that, you know, the footballer or the tennis player or whatever is going to be able to perform better? Arguably, yes. It's really interesting, but I guess I'm really obviously ingrained into the data analytics community, but also I'm not a data analytics professional and I run a business as well, right? So I, I kind of see it from both sides of the fence to say, well, if someone came to me and said, we want to do this, here's, here's what it might happen. I'll be like, right, great. How much are you going to cost me? How long is it going to take to get there? And what are we going to get for it? Because if there's nothing in that, then why would we bother, right? So I kind of see both sides of it. And this is just kind of leading us back into the ability to, to talk and take the business on that journey and influence and all of the you know soft skills, which I find fascinating that we're still at this place where we're talking about, you know, soft skills in quotation marks, because obviously there's nothing soft about them at all, right? They're the things that actually make the difference or not. Um, I find it fascinating that we're still talking about this lack of them sometimes within certain data leadership figures versus what you were talking about before in, did they need to be coming from a, a very technical background? And you rightly said, like, you know, that's probably the thing I harp on about the most on platforms like LinkedIn, right? About these just mm. disparity and discrepancies in job descriptions between, you know, most of them still, despite the fact that we're, we're all identifying and debating and discussing that it's the soft skills that makes the difference. Yet most job descriptions are still littered with some kind of shopping list of technical requirements. Now, whatever that is, that's obviously okay. contextual, right? It could be, yeah, they might be looking for a more governance or data management focused person and it's all around yeah. frameworks and policies. It could be it's more advanced analytics. So they're saying Python, Spark, Scala, Kafka, blah, 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 right? It's really interesting. But why, why do you think this is still coming up? Is this, is this just because we've still not gotten this right and we're kind of looking for the thing to pin that on? Because 
as we spoke about offline, right? We wouldn't, yeah. we wouldn't hire a CFO and say, you know, we want this person to be, um, you know, the, the super user of zero accounting software, for example, right? That that'd just almost be crazy to ask for, wouldn't it? <laughs> but yeah, we but we but we do the same thing in our industry. We do that exact exact thing, right? So I'm just really keen to yeah. uh, get your stance on that. So we wouldn't hire a CFO on the basis that they could build a report in zero. That's that's absolutely true. But we wouldn't hire a CEO, sorry, a CFO that didn't understand the key metrics in that report. We wouldn't understand we wouldn't hire a CFO that didn't have an understanding of why that report was useful and what to do with it. And also the underlying drivers, right? So if we're thinking about um, profit and loss, if we're thinking about um, asset sweats or um, equity-based calculations on interest. CFO might not be able to go and do that inside Excel anymore, but they're going to understand the process and why it's important. So whilst I do think you can be successful in a chief data position without necessarily coming from that background, it just makes it very tough because we're going to talk about taking people on the journey quite a bit. And it's not just taking um, your executives, your commercials and your stakeholders on the journey, it's taking your team. Now, we're in a world where we know that there's more contention than ever for a specialized data resource. We're also starting to finally get that data engineers are the, the saving grace for a lot of organizations, which is great because I've always been on that wallpark. Now, when we're starting to talk about competition, we start to think about who do we want to work with? What's their thought leadership? And how can they take me to that next level? So if you come in as a chief data officer and you can't have a day-to-day -day conversation with people in your line, around what, what they're doing and how to drive success and provide some guidance. Now that doesn't need to be, I'm gonna come in and, and mod modify your Python code and show you how to do that better. But it might be an approach to problem solving. Now I do wanna jump back a little bit because I loved your analog about the sports masseuse. Now, if we think of why we might wanna have a sports masseuse in a sports team, we're starting to think about outcomes, right? We're either wanting to see better performance in terms of raw numbers, sprinting times, athleticism, recovery from injury. So we've got an outcome in mind. We can probably go and capture some data around what the normal outcomes are, and we can test the progress over time. So now we start to think about that value driver being something not just related to money. It could be something along the lines of we want to help our athletes recover from this consistent or this very uh, common injury more consistently and perform better in their subsequent games. And we're going to track that over time. Now, that's a value metric. We're talking about leading um, indicators and lagging indicators to reach an outcome. So outcomes are very important when thinking about value. So even though we're not tying that to a dollar figure, we can still tie that to a process that we could actually find some value in. And we can write that up as a metric. We could go to our coach and say, hey, coach, if we could get your players that suffer from, a, I don't know, a quadriceps tear on the field quicker and performing better and back to their best, is that good for you? Yep, cool. Okay, that's valuable. Let's go and work on a program for that. So this is how we, I think, as data professionals often lose the plot a little bit, which is we, our entire job is helping other teams with this. If we think about chief marketing officers again, they've got a really tough thing. They've got to attribute their marketing campaigns to incoming customer growth, to revenue and to conversion ratios in a world in which they've got multiple touch points. I mean, if you think about your own purchasing journey, and I don't want to turn this into one of those because God knows we've heard about this for 15 years around purchasing journeys and CX, and it's very important. But if we think about our own purchasing journeys, we're actually jumping across different screens, different touch points. And after all of that, probably still went to the store because we're impatient, we want it in our hands. How do we track that properly and actually attribute all these marketing campaigns? Well, the reality is it's actually analytics professionals that have been doing that for chief marketing officers for years. And the chief marketing officers know how to tell that story to go and get bigger budgets, to do bigger campaigns, to hopefully drive bigger results, right? So it's ironic in a way that as a, a core skill set of people in data and analytics is creating metrics for other people, but they're very bad at creating metrics for themselves. Now that would completely change the game if they're getting better at creating metrics for their team. Why are we doing these hygiene factors around how we're storing our data? And even looking at certain things like, why does it take people six months to put a field in a report? We're in a day and age where data flows pretty easily and pretty well. Now there's governance aspects, there's security, there's privacy. Very, very important. But how much red tape stops you from actually driving a business result? Now jumping back to the idea of what are these soft skills that I think people need, right? So this the elements of negotiation, the, the thoughts around how do I build um, a real journey for stakeholders to come on and how do I collaborate with them? 
Success for me in data is when people in the business are coming to you with their most important problems and asking you to contribute and solving them. It's not necessarily that they just wanted you to change a color on a dashboard or you know change a font. Yeah, how many um, teams are in that domain? So I think starting to think about those important questions, how to build this mandate with other business execs to get their support, because again, we're coming back to change being the, the aspect. It's not the massage of the sports masseuse that we're actually wanting to track. It's the fact that we got the athlete back on the field quicker. Likewise, in business, right, we're tracking, we changed the price. That meant that we had higher volume or maybe we had lower volume, but our revenue efficiency was better and therefore we got this result. The other one in data that's quite important is it's experimental. A good data science team should fail pretty frequently because they're trying to tackle hard problems. Pure data science team sitting around and saying, hey, look, we did this and we never fail. We're always doing good things. Throw them some curveballs because they kind of need it. I think um, part of the thing around, even if we take it back to marketing, right, we're experimenting with campaigns quite often to see if they're going to drive different uptake and we put metrics around it and then we decide whether or not we're going to do it more. Same thing can happen in data, right? So free people up, get them the right access to the tools and technology, release some of these barriers and these red tape solutions and let them experiment. Um, that will definitely help you sort of drive a bit more value inside the org. Yeah, yeah, absolutely agree. I, I really like the point that you spoke about where you said, obviously, data analytics people, you know, they're, they're an enabler to other business domains, right? And yeah. therefore, they're great at setting metrics and monitoring those metrics for other teams, but fail often to, to do that well for themselves. And obviously the whole point around ROI and the reason why it's so contentious is because it's actually really difficult to draw tangible lines often, right? Between we did this, that resulted in that. How much of this in your eyes is a kind of attribution problem between teams? Because, you know, if we had a data science team here at Orbition that, you know, said, right, we've done all of this work, I'm sure, you know, that helped our sales team to, I don't know, increase sales by whatever, 20% next year, for example. I'm pretty sure our sales team wouldn't be saying, "Hey, data science team, great job!" Yeah. Right? You know, <laughs> they'd be yeah, going, "Look correct. how look how yeah. great we are at sales!" Right? You know yeah. what I mean? So, there must, uh, some somewhere along the line, there's probably, I, I presume, and obviously, I've never been on the inside of an organization like you yeah. have, David. But I presume that must be something that happens, right? In terms of how do you attribute, how, how do you get to that point? And I guess that then probably ties us back to the soft skills, right? In terms of the relationship building, the collaboration with different business and domain figures and stuff like that. Yeah, and different different pathways to create value, right? So if I'm in a conversion-based company in which if I can drive more traffic and I can understand the quality of that traffic leads to more sales, I'm capturing those metrics already. Now, if I start to think about something a little bit different, like a sales unit where Maybe what we've done is we've created some data process to take better leads off of LinkedIn. We've produced those in a better way and we've given you some subjective questions or some subjective things to ask that person. Now, you're still going to say, and quite rightfully, because I think in a lot of cases, what data science, data analytics should be doing is almost acting as that coach element, right? We're giving you a little bit more advice, a little bit more guidance and grounding, but you've still got to go and execute and at the end of the day in sales and any of these sort of face-to-face roles, authentic communication is always going to win out. So yes, the salesperson definitely inherently involved. Now, there's a built-in mechanism for testing the efficacy of models, and it's the on-off switch, right? We've got a test and control group. So let's say I put 80% of your salespeople on it, 20% are off of it, and we rotate that group, or maybe it's 60-40, depending on what we want to do. But we're rotating that group, so one week you've got a chance to be on there, and the next you don't. We're starting to get to a point where we can draw real credible numbers around what's the uplift or what's the gain we have in this model versus if we weren't running this model. So there's a way to test that even in those sort of complicated situations and scenarios. But I think um, a lot of my success, so I think of companies like Fonterra. Fonterra is a massive dairy cooperative in New Zealand, runs about $20 billion of milk out of the country. So there was all sorts of different ways because it was from farm all the way to producing milk in stores and even a retail brand that we could impact. And like one that came to mind was 
we had an idea we could effectively make trucks a bit more efficient around fuel, but also preventative maintenance. So we went and had a look at cost per kilometer over lifetime. We did a bunch of different variables like that. But before we actually did anything in terms of this is where we're approaching, we built an integrated team. We got a couple of truck drivers on board. We got the fleet manager on board and we talked through the problems and we defined some metrics up front that all of us could agree to that if we, if we could hit those metrics, if we could do these things in this way, it would actually be valuable. Now, you can take that at different levels. So Fonterra, we were actually going then to our financial director of these different business units and having it written into their budget that part of their target was to now drive that efficiency. So now we had a balance sheet location. Now, that can work really well, but it can also create situations where people might not want to work with you. They don't want their budgets to constantly go downwards. So the other side of that is a value enablement thing. But again, if you um, work with the finance team or if you work with your business unit variable, part of your thing when you're starting to think about these problems we can solve is, do I have business support? Is it feasible? Now, is that, do I have the data available? Do I have the skill set inside? Like, I'm not going to try and, you know, do an image classification project if I don't have cameras and I don't have people that can do that. And then primarily, do I have business support? Is there someone that's going to drive this change through for me? So um, another example of Fonterra is we changed the way that pallets should be optimized and stacked to effectively ship things out quicker, but also lower the amount of pallets we needed to send. So better experience for customers and cheaper for us. Now that has a Tetris style solution in the back end, right? We would tell people how to lay out these pallets when these orders came through and everything else, but you've still got to go and actually change the way that those systems work. We had a partner in that business that was able to drive that for us, but getting them on that journey, finding metrics that actually matter and tying those into those metrics is important. And I've often said, I'm always, if I'm taking a leadership role on data and I don't have some sort of target that's commercial attached, I don't think it's the right company for me to be joining because I actually want to drive value and I want to drive a commercial result. Now that's a mindset thing. I've come across data professionals that see their role. I'm going to, I'm going to exaggerate this. They see their role as stopping people from getting access to data, right? The risk management side of it or the, um, the data governance and the warehousing side of it, which is no, you can't have this field. Um, now, within reason, I think information is power when it's shared amongst the organization. So have good governance because that's critical. Transparency around how you're using your data with your customers, that's critical too, because we're in a, a day and age where potentially consumers are more aware of data as a currency than what organizations are. So buy them, get them into the journey too. But mostly remove these roadblocks. It's good, effective risk management. It's not about stopping someone from doing something. It's about letting them do something in a safe way. So I think that's the other thing that I'd love to see change in, in how we're using our data. Mm, yeah. So obviously you started to speak there around having that kind of commercial target, which I think is really fascinating because just broadly speaking, I don't, I don't think there are that many businesses out there or CDOs or data leaders that, that, um, have that or probably would be <laughs> would be comfortable Keep having that <laughs> yeah <laughs> exactly and then the other part of that equation is again back to the having the ability and the skill set to to get to that point right in terms of getting the buy-in from the the other stakeholders that that, that you need <laughs> that you need there just talk us through a bit in a bit more detail around the the concept of having that commercial target because you know we've had people on this podcast who have written books about the you know the Doug Laneys of this world and the Bill Schmarzos of this world right who talk about getting data on a balance sheet and if you can do that and it's gets you know get the business to understand that it can be on a balance sheet or whatever the case may be then you know you're in a much better place but just talk us through you know for anyone out there listening that's thinking okay well how do I go about how do I go about doing that? Because I said there's some conflict, right, in terms of budgets, nose diving, and then value creation and, and so forth. Not to answer the question with a, a link. I did write a blog. I was at a company called Domino Data Lab, which delivered data science platforms and machine learning ops into organizations. And part of the thing I was driving there was this value credibility. So there's um, a couple of blogs there that if your uh, listeners want to go and have a look at, we talk around leading and lagging metrics because with data science, right, we're effectively, we're not going to get the result 
within a time frame that means we can always track it. It's not like it's a sales campaign where we've now got that style. Some of those things might take nine to 18 months to unfold. So leading and lagging metrics are very important and identifying them, but also coming up with the story of what you're trying to do. So if I think of an example of a story, let's say in retail, we want to have a look at how many retail staff we need in that floor to one, service our customers and delight them, Two, make sure that we can get our hygiene factors done, like merchandising and stocking up. But three, save a little bit of cost and give our, maybe be able to be a bit more flexible in rostering systems, give our um, employees some more time off. Now we have a really clear um, driver, right? The thing that we want to change is we want to create better customer experience by having the right amount of people online. We want to keep the store in good and um, efficient shape. And we want to basically allow our um, retail employees a bit more flexibility. So those are three assumptions we can start with or three drivers, right? Now we build hypotheses off the back of those. So let's say if we know people coming in and we're able to identify what their interests are and we can tie them to the right agent or the right rep at the um, storefront, that's going to be a quicker transaction, therefore less time, but also less frustrating for the customer. We can start to build out these types of things um, and we start to list out these assumptions and hypotheses that we can put metrics against. So that's a very technical way of saying, go back to thinking about what you're actually trying to achieve, how you could measure it and how to track that measurement. Now the attachment to balance sheet, that's the leap of faith that a lot of companies won't have. Now the way to go about that is to start to think about what you can show in terms of commercial show up. There are always gonna be situations where it's intangible and it's gonna sort of hide within a balance sheet, but start thinking about agreements around attribution to what that business problem is. So. Um, we talked about the sales one earlier. If I'm working with the sales team, if I've got my um, control group against a, a model group and I can show over time that using the tool sets that I've delivered around sales effectiveness is lifting you 10 to 15%, maybe we can say, look, part of that is now that they're, they're more comfortable and they've got a more organized way of doing it. So we're going to attribute 50% of the sales team, 50% to data science. But also like one of the really cool things that I've come across in my career is people do want you to succeed, right? If you're helping them be successful, they want you to succeed. I've had situations where someone said, no, take 100% and attribute it to what you've done because that's been really good. So again, those relationships and those networks in play and not kind of coming in. And in many cases with data, it tends to be a case of we've built this, now you have to use it, right? Business intelligence reporting, compliance reporting, even models. We have done this even without you knowing and now you've got to use it. It's never going to work because we come back to them. What's the most important factor? Why do most data projects fail? It's not the data. It's not the technical side of it. It's generally the people side. It's the change management. It's the selling. It's the negotiation. It's the education. So get those in play. Get the people that are actually going to be using the tool as part of your team. Buy a little bit of their time, get them invested. And then they're also invested in making that successful. Then you'll start to find actually tying this to a commercial uh, variable is a little bit easier. Now, the other one I'd suggest, right? So um, there are some things in the business that are very, very hard to attribute to finance in general. Uh, there's things that we do, right? And we think about data as an asset. Now, if we think of data as an asset, we can correlate that to buildings or infrastructure as assets. Do we let those sit there and go to waste? Or do we clean them re frequently? Do we have a team of maintenance professionals? Do we do things like have externals come in and do audits on the buildings and everything else? Of course we do, because we want those to be valuable assets. We want them to still produce. Now, how many times in data do we put something somewhere and forget about it and never go back and clean up quality? Well, any data scientist you talk to, their biggest frustration is access to data followed by data quality. Um, any data engineer you talk to, access to data and easiness to get it through to somewhere. Those types of things, again, that we need to think about data as an asset, then we've got to treat it like an asset. So how do we drive impact and, and profit off of the asset? Definitely. But also, how do we keep the asset up to scratch? That's another part of that. But yeah, I think building those relationships with core execs, really tying them into the, the strategy of a data project is important. But when you first go in as a chief data officer, look for the quick wins, look for the small, low-hanging fruit that you can just pick off the tree. Um, and it might be like in a lot of cases when I come into an organization, I've worked here for, I've worked in organizations for 20 years and I've got a few tricks around things that I just know work. Um, one around project management and being able to look at how people actually communicate. And too much communication leads to bad projects, too little communication leads to bad projects. 
I'll bring that into every organization I go into because I know it can be quite impactful and drive success and I know how to point to that as a value measure. So backing yourself based on previous um, exploits to bring those into organizations and say, hey, we've driven value, now what, what can we do? Um, when people are asking you questions rather than being told the answer to something they didn't ask, they're always going to be more tied into that. So part of the executive leadership skill, part of this data leadership skill is getting people to trust you with their most important problems and seeing you as a valid member of solving them. Now, a lot of organizations don't do that very well. Um, and a lot of organizations, the us versus them mentality between data and IT or data and the business seems to exist, right? Um, why does it take you so long to get a field in my report? Why can't I get access to this in Excel? Or thinking even on the data side, why does IT make getting access to the system so difficult, right? So there's this us versus them mechanic, which isn't helping anyone. So those types of things, this um, community element, this we're all driving this thing together and this is how we're going to do it, very, very essential to then driving it to balance sheet because a lot of this comes back down to good faith between you and the commercial aspect of the business. Mm. You know, what I'm really enjoying about this conversation, David, is that everything we've spoken about on either side of the fence is basically coming back to the skill set that someone has as a data leader to be able to get to this point. It's it's as it's as simple as as that, right? Which is is really fascinating. I guess one thing that often can be a bit of a curveball, and I know again we've spoke about this offline, is that. Most organizations, in my experience, for all the best intentions, normally start out on this journey um, with a lack of clarity, a lack of strategy, um, maybe a bit of FOMO, maybe um, you know, feel obliged, feel peer pressured because the competitor is doing great stuff with data analytics or you know, the business down the street is doing this big fancy AI project. And that leads, in my opinion, to bad behaviors from the get-go you know so then we we find ourselves in these situations where organizations have spun up a new cloud data warehouse and it's it becomes very much around well let's build it and then we'll figure it out as we go and the more that goes on and the longer that goes on for the more difficult it is for a data leader then to come in get a grip of that and try to do the right things and get back to this point of look let us let's build these relationships let's get you know let's let's start to identify where we can get these wins let's you know then mm -hmm. put metrics in place where we both agree that if we do that you know then you know kudos to us both yeah. and a pat on the back each it becomes really difficult what's your experience of of how that impacts the journey yeah it's quite significant right we um you're at harvard business review that each time they put out a magazine will have some sort of story on success in ai or data that's been the case for the last 20 years 10 20 years um, you've got companies like McKinsey coming out and saying the driving factor of success is how well you utilize your data and it's a competitive advantage that's sustainable unlike any other. So if I'm an exec and I'm flying back from a conference on a plane and I'm reading one of these magazines or someone's forwarded me the email or anything else, my view is, yeah, I have to do this and I have to take it seriously. But what I'm not asking myself is how do I make this successful? Now, I really love this concept of demystifying data science, demystifying data for executives and taking them on a very simple journey where let's say we, we go through the age old Titanic problem and we just go through a very simple process of showing them how statistics can be used to start predicting who would live or die on the Titanic. Now, the reason Titanic's pretty easy is the data set's quite simple to utilize. Um, it caters itself well to a decision tree, which I can show visually. But more importantly, everyone has an assumption already built in their head around, okay, what's likely to have happened? If I was male and over 18, I probably died. And if I was female and um, on the boat, I probably survived, right? That's one of the conceptions we have. But if you start to dig into the data, there's other things like the passenger class or total numbers of siblings were quite important for different re reasons. Now, as you're talking them through that story, you can get them thinking around, oh, that's interesting. Why is this variable coming up? And get them starting to think about why that might have been the case, showing them a map of the Titanic or anything else. Now, that's important because when I think about successful data science, it comes back down to being able to get these people to ask you the right questions, but then understand their role in the process, which um, give you executive sponsorship, make sure there's no barriers to getting the data you require give you access to people that can actually drive change and really be the, the mandate or driver for change themselves and help you in terms of alignment and getting coaching in place. So demystifying advanced analytics or data science or data to those is very important. 
So I think demystifying executives to data leaders is probably going to be pretty important over the next few years. Um, and, and maybe that's something like an MBA, maybe that's an executive education course, but it could be a little bit further than that. Um, yeah, so I think we're always going to go into roles that have had legacy, and I think that's no different to any executive position you pick up, right? There's always, you think of how many techni- technology officers have gone into companies with tons of technical debt, really clear ideas of what they want to do in future, but can't quite get there until they've gone and done a bit of tidy up. So it happens across all roles. Compartmentalizing what you're going to do now, how you're still going to be taking people on the journey. If you're just seen as someone who's coming in and fixing things and not driving value, uh, there's a reason that a lot of chief data officers are only seeing one to two year timeframes in that position. And I think it's because of this. If you're going in there and you have a strategy for the future, but you're very aligned to what needs to happen now to get there, um, and maybe you've taken a few people on like a demystifying course and you've got their buy-in, it's going to help a little bit more. Now, that doesn't take away from, say, a data warehouse that's 20 years old and very archaic and very slow. You're still going to have to deal with that beast. Um, and to your point, right, we're very fast adopters of technology, but not necessarily the people and process side. So I've talked about the importance of data engineers here. How many organizations hire 100 data scientists yet can't point feasibly to one data engineer? Uh, that's going to be a problem. Uh, data scientists are great, but they're not very great at robust delivery of data from solution A to mm-hmm. solution B. Some might be, but then you're taking them away from what they should be doing, which is solve problems. Um, that's the other challenge. So what does that all look like for someone coming in and leading data? One, have the war wounds. This is why I do think having a bit of experience and a bit of technical understanding of what actually happens inside these organizations from a data perspective is important. Very hard for me to troubleshoot why a data warehouse might be slow and archaic if I've never had experience in that domain. Um, Now, if I'm relying on people to have that experience for me, that can definitely work if I bring in the right people. But I still like to see data um, leaders have real good domain experience just for the fact that it's a little bit different. Now, data, as I often think about, is not just technology. It's kind of a combination of commercial, combination of technology, and now with the advent of machine learning, even mathematics comes into it, right? So you're not going to quite fit in any one of those areas. So chief data officers, for me, should be top table representation, leading their own department, which works the same way a chief information or chief technology officer would, works across the business to drive business efficiency and and look at ways to improve. Now, one of your other challenges around data leadership positions, chief data officers, where they get placed in the business is going to define how they operate and act. If I'm put in a finance officer team and my boss is the chief financial officer, hey, I'm probably going to be doing a lot of compliance reporting. I'm probably going to be doing a lot of um, financial analysis and planning. If I go into marketing, well, I'm probably going to be working a lot on digital uh, campaign efficiency. I'm probably going to be doing product design, campaign marketing. Right? So where we place these in an organization can definitely impact them. And then coming to my point around constantly looking at the structure of your data teams. Have I got enough people that can flow data efficiently from point A to point B? If I don't, then why am I hiring more people that are waiting for data? Some of this sort of that comes into account to really sort of drive meaningful change. Um, it's not easy. Don't get me wrong. It's very easy to sit on a podcast and say, well, this is what you should be doing. And it's so easy that... Because it's not, and we've all gone through these war wounds and we've all had these experiences where you might not have the the executive support or mandate that you want to have. Part of this comes back to storytelling and taking people on that journey and pointing to some pretty cool achievements inside their organization. And another thing that I've always found really useful is getting someone that's not you um, to go in and tell the story of how you've helped them. So in the data world, Find someone that you might have helped with pricing and analytics or um, the way that their truck fleet works and get them to go and tell the story of how that's driving effectiveness and efficiency. Take it back to your sports masseuse concept. Um, LeBron James talks effusively about his team. He spends a million dollars a year to stay on the court. Uh, this year, not so much, but in previous years, right, he's been Mr. Iron Man, Mr. Endurance, and Tom Brady's the same they will tell you firsthand the effectiveness of their teams, but they'll also start to talk about why that team's effective. That's something I think data professionals really need to start thinking about. Um, Maybe by proxy of the fact that we're quite analytical, um, maybe cynical sometimes, we don't think about selling our achievements very well. Um, How many times have I sat in rooms listening to the, the chief marketing officer talk about the great new campaign that drove 50 likes for $100,000? It's one I've actually 
fully experienced. 50 Facebook likes, $100,000, and that's a great campaign. Of course, I'm sitting there thinking, why would you ever sell this achievement? But on the flip side, how many times have I seen data professionals do really cool things and never tell anyone about them? So the, the selling aspect of this role is very important. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's so much great stuff in there. I think, first of all, the, the reporting structure is is a very interesting debate and one I've, um, you know, first-hand experience on if we look at some of the success stories they typically be where there's a chief data officer that's seen and valued as part of the c-suite is a peer to the other c-suite um, executives and sits on par with them and often reports to the ceo or the coo possibly um, yeah. typically where you get a lot of friction and red tape is when as you've described right there they're kind of pigeonholed into another domain therefore you know they're, they're kind of sea level minus one right and i've always thought well surely you're kind of always working with blinkers because if you're sat in a domain, you're going to be doing most of your work in that domain, right? Which is really interesting. I think absolutely preaching to the choir here around data engineering, right? You know, data science being the sexiest job of the 21st century um, for, a, for a couple of years and, and, and then kind of seemingly fell off a cliff. And yeah, I mean, the, just the, the influx now for data. I mean, on, on, honestly, I, I, I can count on one hand the number of job specs that we've seen as a business for data scientists in the last two or three years. Um, data engineering, data architecture is pretty much exclusively what it is with quite a lot of governance actually now, given the whole resurgence around that, right? Is that's now become an enabler in itself and not just seen as Absolutely. a tick box exercise, yeah. which is interesting. Um, and I think the, the kind of selling piece, that's, I mean, I've had people sit on this podcast for, for the full hour, David, and talk about why you need to be able to sell, you know, your, yourself. And I think that the kind of the, the cynics of, of our audience will probably look at that and say, well, that's, you know, that's not our skill set. And I think that probably brings us, you know, ties us quite nicely into, mm -hmm. to kind of try and conclude this in a way is that often the perception is that, you know, if you are, technical you are a data person your ability to tell stories to be more commercial minded probably isn't you know at the top of the list in terms of your forte of skills but awesome. the argument is that it absolutely needs to be right so give us your steer on if that you know if what we've described there very briefly uh, and I, I appreciate it's a sweeping generalization but you know how, how do data leaders try and create those executive kind of skills or mindsets to yeah. kind of allow them to, to kind of get to this point? I think look in the mirror and realize what your authentic interests are in the workplace, right? So one of the things that I think we're starting to get better with, but there's a lot of work to be done. Not everyone wants a management role. A lot of people want to do very strong individual contribution and they might have some mentoring or leadership, but effectively that's what they enjoy doing. They want to be on the tools. They don't want to be executive managers. Now, they're the people that might come to you and say, well, I'm not a salesperson, I'm a technologist. And that's fine, actually. We need more people that want to specialize and want to stay in the domain, become these very um, central knowledge figures to their organizations. So we as organizations, as companies, as leaders, need to design ways that we can allow them specialization to progress, right? Otherwise, why do we, most of us go into management because that's how we progress to the next step. Um, sometimes it's forced on us. Sometimes it's the way to get the money, right? One of the things you should always look at is how do I create a system in which we can reward some of our really important analysts and data scientists in a way that might be uh, compensated the same as some of our leaders because actually the value they're driving. Someone who's been in your company and successfully delivered analyst results or uh, data science results for 10 to 15 years, if they're doing their job properly and you've got them the metrics from what we talked about earlier, it's probably driving 15, 20 million in some organizations, right? Some of these billion dollar organizations. Yet, what's their pay packet versus their leader? We've really got to change that because I think we're, uh, this is a wider discourse we could spend an hour talking about. Is it right that there are billionaires in the world? I'm sure we could find reasons that there <laughs> isn't, there isn't, right? But we have to think about this as data leaders. We have to think about these specialization tracks because not everyone that works in a technical role is going to want to step up and do leadership. Now, if you do want to step up and do leadership, there's different domains. There's coaching and mentoring, and then there's the executive side of it. Now, for me, data needs to get to that executive level in order to be impressive, important, and drive the types of results. Now, if we think about some of the biggest growing companies in the world, technical people are leading those companies. 
Elon Musk is a bigger nerd than anyone could ever imagine, right? He's a software developer by trade. Then he started to grow into different areas. He went into marketing. Now he's the world's, you hear about him every day. He just bought 10% of Twitter. He has driven most of his pursuit out of technical excellence. Now he's going to have some skills there that are desirable and skills that aren't desirable. I don't know if I'd want to work day to day with Elon Musk. I'm sure some people <laughs> might, not me necessarily. But if we start to think about what are the change points for some of these people, right? It's that identification that for what I do to be valuable, it has to be valuable and I have to sell the story and I have to be seen to be doing it. So look in the mirror and work out if you want to be a leader. And if you do, you've really got to start thinking about, well, what is leadership when we go up the levels? And leadership for me, again, negotiation, absolutely important. Being able to build and drive your own mandate. So not sit there and wait for permission. Um, not sit there and wait to be told what to do or where the burning bridges are, drafting your own plan of attack, building high culture and high performance within your team so you can go and tackle some of these legacy hurdles and bring those through, and then sell the value of what you're doing through these metrics, through other measures, such as having someone just extol the virtues of being always able to get an answer from your team. Those types of things are very critical when you want to take that next step up into being a chief data officer. But not everyone has to, right? And this is the other thing to, to keep in mind. Um, if you feel like you're better off being on the tools, why would you take a job where you're not? We just as an industry need to start rewarding people that are good in those domains as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's probably the general consensus in most kind of industries, right? You yeah. know, it's the same in, in our industry. You think because someone's a, a great recruiter, well, let's put them into management and they can teach 10 people how to recruit just as well as they can. And we all know that doesn't, you know, nine times out of 10 doesn't work like that, right? So it's, um, exactly. yeah, exactly that. Sports is a great one for this. So like we've used sports analogs a little bit, but if you think about the different styles of leadership in a sports team, you've got the on-floor, let's use NBA because they've got bureaucracy through the roof, right? You've got the on-floor <laughs> captain who's running the team. You've got the point guard who might not be the captain who's leading the plays. You've got the coach who's drawing up some stuff. You've got the offensive coach and the defensive coach helping them on that side. Then you go in and you've got the, uh, it might be the player manager or the player director. Then you've got the executive manager. Then you've got the board, whatever else it is, right? Each of these leadership levels have different roles and responsibilities that they're bringing to that team, but they're all towards that same thing. Now, that's something to start thinking about in terms of, are you a player coach? Sorry, are you a player? Are you a captain? Are you a player coach? What are you? How, what? Where are you best suited for your skill sets? Now, one of the other things is over time, roles should change, people should change, right? So over time, you might not feel you've got good capability around selling or presentation or anything else. But one of the things I always try and do with my teams is give them opportunities to present and storytell with data and help them out, I guess, from their aspect. I can, I'm fortunate I could probably still sit down on Python and knock something up and knock a dashboard out, but maybe in five years, I'm not going to be able to do that. But I can still talk to someone around important elements of what should be on a dashboard and how to present that data or information. Likewise, if I'm getting them to go and present in front of an exec audience, what are some of the key points and key tips? So that again, like coaching your people on how to be more performant in some of these domains and not letting, I guess, a limit of belief. I think everyone can learn. Everyone has got that capability, right? So saying, look, it's not me and I can't do it. Maybe look in the mirror and say, well, maybe I just don't want to. That, and that's fine. There's plenty of roles and this technical specialization, I think, really needs to take place. But my take on being an executive leader, particularly if you're taking something like data, which is still not really understood, you're going to have to be a storyteller, an educator, and a communicator. And part of that is selling the story. If you want to break the odds and be there longer than a couple of years and really drive change that's that's it you need it mm, absolutely well i think that's an absolutely perfect point to uh, to end on david i'm uh, very conscious of, of time but uh, look it's been an absolute pleasure having you on um, we could probably sit here and wax lyrical for hours and um you know, right. maybe we'll maybe we'll do that again one uh, one one day but uh but yeah thank you so much for coming on really really appreciate your time um i think there's going to be a lot of people take a lot from this so um, yeah, really appreciate it. And uh, yeah, we look forward to seeing um, kind of what comes next in, in your world. That's it for this episode of Driven by Data, the podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. I'll be back next week speaking with another thought leader from the world of data and analytics. Until then, please follow our Bishon Group on social media if you've not already done so, where you'll be able to subscribe and therefore be made aware of the podcasts as they arrive. And please share like and leave reviews so that more people from our industry 
get to hear and benefit from these two. If you've got any questions or you want to suggest ideas for topics or potential guests, then please feel free to reach out to me. Thanks for listening and I'll be back next week. Bow, 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 bow,